This is ChaosCast, the Chaos Community Podcast, where we share use cases and experiences with measuring open source community health, elevating conversations about metrics, analytics, and software from the Community Health Analytics Open Source Software, or short Chaos Project, to wherever you like to listen. Welcome to this episode. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Honey Badger. When you need your code to be reliable, Honey Badger helps with uptime monitoring and contextualized error messages to save you time and money. Get started on Honey Badger today and get a 30% discount by mentioning ChaosCast when you sign up at honeybadger.io. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the ChaosCast. Today, we have a wonderful panel. I'm Matt Broberg. I work at opensource.com. Armstrong, would you mind introducing yourself? Yeah, thank you. I'm Armstrong Fongem, PhD candidate at Ecole Polytechnique. I'm working with open source ecosystem. I do a lot of work with metrics and the Kiosk community. Thanks. And Daniel? Hey, this is Daniel. How are you? So uh, I'm one of the founders of Viteria, active member at the Chaos community and active member at the Inner Source Common as well. Glad to be here. And we are super pleased to have Storm Peters joining us as our guest to dig into all things OSPO and really try to unpack what that means from a metric standpoint. Stormy, can you tell the audience a little about yourself? Yeah, I'm super happy to be here. I'm Stormy Peters, and I'm the director of Microsoft's Open Source Programs Office. I have a long career of helping companies use open source. Fantastic. Yeah. And we want to really dig into a term that listeners may or may not be familiar with yet. If you enjoy metrics and you're involved in open source, there's kind of the daily practice of it, or you're a maintainer and you're just curious about how to look at your own system. But then it elevates into this job posting that's becoming more and more common these days and has a longer history than I knew as somebody who's kind of learning open source these days. So an open source program office is an organization that many corporations are, are adding to their org chart in order to start to standardize some things around open source. And there's a, a lot to understand there. And Stormy, you've been involved in OSPOs for, according to your LinkedIn, since 2000. Could you tell us, in your own words, what is an OSPO providing a company? Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm pretty sure I created one of the very first open source programs office at HP. I wanted to port GNOME to HPX, and it turned out not to be a technical problem. Helix code, which became Zimian, which got acquired by Novell, was more than happy to, to help me do that. But it ended up being a business problem. And so we created an open source programs office to help HP learn how to use open source software and use it effectively. So that's what I think open source programs offices do. They help their organizations use open source software effectively. And depending on where that company's at in its life cycle, the OSPO does different things to help them. The nickname OSPO is pretty new, though. Like they were open source programs office or open source program office for like over a decade. And it's only the last few years I've heard people refer to them as OSPOs. Yeah, I think OSPO is definitely in the at least the Internet vernacular around open source these days. And it, it certainly piqued my interest because it, it seemed to make it normal to be doing this type of work, to be talking to corporations, usually larger ones and trying to standardize how they consume open source. So like, what kind of skills do you need to be in an OSPO? I think a lot of OSPOs are started by technical people who are trying to use open source, who are trying to write the tools to make it easy to use open source. So I think, I think open source programs offices need technical people. 
they definitely need legal resources, whether it's, it's in the open source program office or I work closely with them. It's the attorneys helping us figure out how to comply with the licenses, what different policies should be. And you need to have what I think of as like interpreters or translators, people that can speak both business speak and technical speak and legal speak and business speak and like make everybody understand all the all the pieces. Sounds very babble fish. Like you're you're constantly <laughs> translating like one concept to different audiences in different ways. From a team perspective, then we are we are talking that these OSPO teams are not that big, right? So we are talking about four, five, ten people perhaps at most. Yeah, I, I would think they would need a couple people just just to get started, like four or five. Some OSPOs are, are really big. It depends on it depends on where those if those functions live within the OSPO or in sister teams. Like so, at Microsoft, the engineering team sits in the one one ES one engineering system team. So we have the people developing the tools in a in a different team, and our attorneys sit within the legal organization. It's not an empire. It's more of a partnership with lots of people across the org. I really like that concept. Not an empire. It's a, it's a partnership because you are so uh, like by definition, so multi multi-skilled because, you know, open source is very much the technology of uh, what's out there. What are we forking? What are we adopting? What are we contributing back to? But then it's impossible to separate that from the legal aspects of the licensing and, and compliance side of the organization. Are there certain organizations that you've noticed or has there been a pattern of adoption of OSPOs as a part of the org chart? I think there's been, I don't know if there's more OSPOs, but there's definitely more collaboration between OSPOs. So there's the to-do group at the Linux Foundation that brings together quite a few of us just to talk about open source programs offices and what we're trying to solve and what we need. And so there's been a lot of collaboration. I've recently just like started conversations between different random companies, like one in retail and one in like media. And like, they're trying to solve the same problems within their company and we're all sharing how we do it. So it's like a little mini open source world. Uh, that brings in the concept of OSPOs in the world of Microsoft. How do you relate these two concepts? Because to me, I look at them as the world that we're opposing each other, Microsoft and OSPOs. So I, I like to say that Microsoft's very first contribution to open source source was being the common enemy. So like 20 years That's ago, so most, good. <laughs> yes, everybody hated Microsoft and that like brought them together. Like people that never would have worked together were willing to like, you know, Gnome and KDE collaborated because they were fighting Windows, right? Um, and they knew they had to come together. But Microsoft now actually uses a lot of open source. If you look at the, the top 10 projects on GitHub, several of them are, are Microsoft projects. It's in almost every product that we ship. We open source a lot of it. We use tons of it. Microsoft has definitely embraced open source as a, a strategy and a way to, to collaborate with others and a way to ship products. So they're, they're not opposite anymore. Yeah, I feel like anyone jumping into the technology field, software engineering or cloud computing these days would be like, oh yeah, Microsoft's a really open source centric company because you're probably developing software in VS Code and contributing on GitHub owned by Microsoft. And maybe and probably you know pushing stuff to Azure through a bunch of open source CLIs, and you're like, holy crap! I, I know I deal with this divide quite often of people that have been around for 20 plus years, and they still kind of some of them very much still have that hate in their heart for Microsoft, and it's nice to see like people softening to it as they as we evolve to like where people are. Like Linux is normal now, open source is so normal. So I mean. 
like what's been your journey at Microsoft since you've been there, Stormy? You switched over about a year ago now. What are you bringing to that organization that's already like so like going down this line of this open source evolution? So I joined Microsoft a year ago. And I have to say, Microsoft's compliance tools are awesome. Like when I tell the team that, they always tell me, no, 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 it still doesn't do this and it still doesn't do that. And like, we have to add these 10 features, but in the world of compliance, like they're doing a really good job. So when you build software at Microsoft, it automatically detects the open source software. It uses an open source software project called Clearly Defined to go out and find the license. It kicks off a business or legal review if it's needed. If it's not needed, you just automatically have approval. It creates a notice file if you need it. So they're in really good shape tool-wise, and they're continuing to evolve it. We have a whole team of open source engineering team and our 1ES team that I mentioned earlier. But what I'm trying to add is more understanding across the organization of open source and how you can use it in business. So we created like an open source champs group that's like experts in each of the different groups that can help their group, you know, be closer to the, the actual business unit and, you know, answer questions and help them or putting together trainings. So just really helping and grow that culture. I was wondering indeed if OSPO is like a, an effect of a company becoming more open source friendly, so a good open source citizen, or is OSPO created by companies willing to be open source citizens? So what do you think? Yeah, that's a really good question um, because I think it's also changed. So back when I created the very first, well, one of the very first OSPOs, I'm not sure it was the first one um, 20 years ago, most OSPOs got created out of fear. Like we are accidentally going to give away our software. So create this open source program office to make sure we don't mess up and like give away the, the company jewels. And now I think most OSPOs are created, as you're saying, to like, because they're ready to use open source and they want to use it the right way and they want to encourage its use. So yeah, I think most OSPOs now are created because people want to not just use, but like be part of the open source software community. I was asking this because I've been involved in during the last year at the Inner Source Commons community. So the idea is about bringing lessons learned from the, from the open source world ecosystem about how to work, how to break silos, right? How to geographically distribute it in a distributed way, collaborate all together and produce high quality pieces of software. So it seems that Inner Source is kind of this first step into, into that world of open source and somehow at least bring those skills into internally in companies. And then, then the company may decide, okay, we, we may have this piece of code to be proprietary because of the reasons, and then we may have this piece of code become, become open source. And I know that, uh, that in Microsoft, there is a, there is a strong like, related to inner source. So how are both worlds related in, in Microsoft at this point in time? So the inner source functionality or you know responsibility mm -hmm. is part of our open source programs office so they're they're very close oh. to microsoft i think it's interesting that we're seeing the same cultural challenges in inner source that we're seeing with open source efforts so microsoft yeah. it was it's a huge strength that they have really strong ownership for the software that they write like and yet it, it's a barrier in the open source software world where software is kind of owned by a lot of people. So like at Microsoft, if you were using somebody else's software like InnerSource and I found a problem with it, I would just tell you and you would just fix it because it's your software and you want it to work well for everybody. There's not the concept of I would come in and fix your stuff because like that's your stuff. And I wouldn't like, this is a, it's kind of an old thought, you know, like I wouldn't fix your stuff because yeah. you want to fix your stuff. And, and so we're changing, it's changing. It's definitely changing. We have a number of like, 
we've been putting together case studies of teams that have done a really good job of intersource and got lots of contributions from other teams and we're, we're highlighting that for everybody. But that, that strength is, is a barrier when it comes to the open source world. PRs, welcome or not, is a, they're both very different cultures. And I think just being, I, I guess. Well, I think it, the PRs are welcome. If the other yeah. person wouldn't even think of like doing it. Cause like, oh, it'd be I, like I wouldn't, I, I always, I, I like to like make the analogy of, of when you have dinner parties, like when you have new guests come over and they want a glass of water, like they wait for you to go get the glass and they like wait for you to fill it up with water and hand it to them. And my friends that have been coming over for a long time, when I can't find something, I'm like, I can't find the spatula. They're like, okay. And they just start opening all the drawers and looking for the spatula. Like they just, they feel totally comfortable going into my cabinets and helping me. It's that kind of difference. Like not feeling welcome to create the PR. Yeah. I love that because that analogy works really well because it, it brings it all the way into like software and open source software is a form of trust. Uh, like, and that being the greatest currency you can build across teams is like, like, I trust you and welcome you to open up all the drawers and see my junk drawer. And I don't even feel awkward about it because we trust each other. Like maybe you'll even help organize it if you're bored. My friends have done that, but um, <laughs> you also have to trust that I'm okay with that. Right. Like, but. Mm. Yeah. That's really interesting. Uh, I think we've got like a, a good over view of like, yeah, so OSPO is this multidisciplinary work. Definitely more organizations are are picking it up as a term and as a org chart, not out of fear like they have in the past, but out of opportunity to participate and to grow. Armstrong, what's your what's your take on what to cover next? Like what's on your mind? I was just saying, given that the world of OSPO is growing and I could I don't know if it's linear growth or exponential growth, but I can see a kind of growth exploding in that direction. Do you have any concern about what you can measure, like the matrices, you, things like that? Do you measure any metrics in that uh, direction? Yeah, metrics are really interesting because there's so many things you can measure, and then you don't really know which ones are... It's, metrics are hard to know which, which ones you should pay attention to, right? So we measure things like the number of open source software components that are used at Microsoft and the numbers in the millions. And we look at um, the number of reviews that we had, like how many people asked to use open source software to contribute to it. We look at how many Microsoft employees have affiliated their GitHub account with their Microsoft identity. So there's, there's lots of metrics. And the interesting part is like, or the challenging part, <laughs> to be honest, is, is figuring out which ones we want to track, which ones we want to grow, which ones we just want to know about. What, what do you think? Have you, do you have recommendations? Well, I think like from what you have mentioned so far, it seems as if you have some discrete metrics, which, and then you have some other levels of metrics that you can abstract from those to deal with higher level metrics. Can you differentiate if that is the case? So do we have discrete metrics that we measure and then higher level? I, I would say we have like, we have things we measure and then we have assumptions, not assumptions, but yeah. what's the word I'm looking for? We, like we have theories. Yeah. That we develop but, on top of those. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm, I mean, as, so if I were, let's say an owner, if, if that's even the right terminology of an open source project run within the, the team's ecosystem, like are, what are the default metrics that you might advise me to either use or, or avoid as I'm like trying to see community health and growth. 
Yes, I, I think it would start with a, a conversation about what you were trying to do. Right. So if you had just created a project and you said, I'm, I'm really trying to grow the community and make sure it's not dependent on Microsoft, you know, you might look at how many non-Microsoft contributions you got versus Microsoft or how many PRs you got a week or how fast they got closed. I, I know there's a metric that says if, if you respond to someone within 24 hours, they're much more likely to stick around. It would depend on or if you told me your goal was just to get lots of people using it, like you didn't care if they contributed because you have a solid team behind it and you know you just want to put it out there for people to use, that would be a different set of things you would look for. Uh, do, do you know about these obsolete uh, assumptions? Have you ever encountered any as you are doing, since you talked about the assumptions or building theories and things like that? Have you ever come across any kind of uh, obsolete assumptions? Oh, I love this. Like this idea of like, what, what's something that you were so certain of the correlation from an open source project based on a metric. And then you're like, uh, maybe that's not right at all. We did have like some interesting debates on whether the number of contributors was a valid health metric or not. Cause it, mm. the theory is that you want lots of contributors from different places in a project in order for the project to have, you know, to, to know that it's going to sustain itself. But then the, the counter argument was like some projects are just done and it only takes one or two people to maintain them. And that doesn't mean that it's a bad project. It's just, it's just done. like, and, and it could end up in a bad situation like open SSL, but, yeah. but it's not necessarily a bad indicator. Is, is that kind of the examples you were, you were looking for? Have you seen any assumptions that turned out to, to not be true? I'm curious that I can check. Well, I know there are couples of, uh, op- obsolete assumptions for example someone you could say like the first projects are open communities anyone can can join them you could also say like there are a couple of obsolete assumptions you know like all of the people there are volunteers but now we are seeing that companies and corporations are really taking a toll on all those things so some of those kind of assumptions like they don't really hold true and some of them have been proven yeah i've got one that comes to mind Stormy, like there, there's an open source project I absolutely love that I think based on all the metrics, it just has like linear growth of issues. None of them are closing. No new PRs uh, merged in like two years now. And it's just kind of dangling out there on GitHub. But it's amazing. And it does exactly what I need it to for the weird project I have on the side. And yeah, I've forked and had to fix some issues on my own that can't get merged back. But it's great. It's doing what it needs to do for me. The original maintainer is not active anymore because he's moved on. But I, I still would call that like a successful project because of its adoption and because people have workarounds that they share through issues. But like by I think some standard metrics, you'd be like, oh well, this is a dead project. It's it should be archived and move on. Yeah, it it, it still does something useful. And and there's kind of the. It does what it said it was going to do, right? It doesn't need yeah. to do all the things that all those people that made PRs wanted it to do. Well, yeah, going back to Armstrong's point, I think it's really interesting. There's, I think there is an assumption that all contributors are sort of the same and work the same and all projects are the same. And so like if I show up and I, I do a PR, like I'm expecting a certain kind of behavior from the project, like they'll review it and they'll accept it and they're expecting that I'll stick around. I've almost thought it would be useful if, if we had different categories that you could attach to yourself. Like I'm coming here, I'm only going to make a one-time PR and then I'm gone, right? Like you don't have to, I'm not going to stick around or, you know, 
is it useful? Would it be useful to projects to know that I work at Microsoft? Like, is it useful to them to know that I'm a full-time employee and there may be a team of people now using this project and suddenly it's going to get a lot more attention? Like, I, I wonder, like, if there's a way to tell the world a little bit about why you showed up and if that's useful. So we've heard stories that, like, Microsoft team shows up at the project and, like, suddenly dumps a bunch of stuff on it and, like, nobody knew they were coming and they're not upset. Or, or a bunch of them came, made a bunch of PRs and then left and they thought they would stick around for five years. And then there's also the concern that all of the paid contributors um, make it really hard for a volunteer contributor to participate. I know when I was at Mozilla, we were creating Firefox OS. Everyone was working 40, 60 hours a week on it. And so it was really hard if you were a volunteer and had five hours a week to keep up with the pace of the project and, and be able to contribute. That's a great, great point. Hey, uh, Danielle, as somebody that you know measures all the things and works on it, full time like uh, how does that resonate with you yeah that's that's a good point so while while you were while you were discussing about metrics and so on I, I certainly have the impression sometimes that metrics are like colors so depending who you are talking to people like different metrics different colors and that's probably one of the main reasons why ospo exists because we need a strategy right we, you you stormy mentioned that we need tactical people within the ospo in any corporation and in this case probably metrics needs to be related in somehow to that, to that strategy. And that's one of the methodologies that we are following in, in chaos community, which is the gold question metric approach. So we try to have specific metrics related to specific questions that then at the same time, they, they are related to community goals or business goals, or even cultural goals, depending at what the level we are, we are talking and, and so on. So with this respect, it's like if, if you are in a room full of people and then you ask what, what's the most important metric for you, probably you have like from 50 people, you have 30 different metrics. There is a reason for that, right? So because each of us have our own, let's say constraints, either uh, quarterly reports, either because we are volunteers, either because we are paid people to work in certain projects and we have a design meeting, whatever. So that's definitely metrics. It's kind of a really huge ecosystem for, for discussion and so on. Do you make recommendations? Like if I told you I want to grow my project, do you have a set of metrics you would say these are the ones you should pay attention to? If we go to that question, my my recommendation would be, or at least based on experience, a recommendation based on all different customers we've had in, in the company and conversations in chaos and at Intersox Commons and so on, would be first try to have a centralized place where you have all the data. And that's one thing. And then try to focus probably on a certain number of metrics. And those should be related to the business goals that you are trying to achieve. An example here might be we, we are I don't know, starting an OSPO in a company. One of the very first things that we would like to do is we are gaining adoption for some of the technologies we just released as open source. So that might be one of the business goals that we are trying to achieve. And for this, we may have specific activities or I know, hackathons around the technology meetups, et cetera, et cetera, right? So we need to understand if those policies are currently working, right? So then for this, we have the business goals, we have the policies we are applying, we need to check if those are currently working. So for this, while we are planning this, then my recommendation would be try to have the metrics, the KPIs that you are going to use after all of this. So it's not about the metrics that you should be using, but at least the method you should be following. That's my recommendation. Well, I'd be remiss not to mention that as uh, in the chaos project, we have the evolution 
working group. And Evolution does have a community growth set of questions that it's trying to answer around number of new contributors, number of contributing organizations or sub-projects, a number like a kaleidoscope, which seems to be the metaphor coming to mind for me of what we all do here, the kaleidoscope of metrics that come to mind. But what I love about what you just said, Danielle, is that those are the metrics that you can look at to see if your behaviors are changing anything. But like what exact strategies you're using, that's not necessarily the metric. We're not telling you like how many hackathons have you run this week? That is, that is like a strategic decision versus, you know, do you need to invest in better communication tooling so that new people know how to find maintainers? We don't quite measure that, but it's, it's going to impact whether new people show up, right? Yeah. So th- there is indeed a potential issue when, when talking about metrics, when you have a, something to measure things or having metrics, that, that's the goal. But no, 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 that's, that's the, the wrong assumption. The good assumption here is that if you have metrics, those are another tool that will help in our OSPO journey or in the journey we are, we are using those metrics for. I really like your analogy of comparing metrics to color. <laughs> and keep in mind that some people in life are colorblind. Yeah. Some prefer red, some prefer blue for whatever reasons. Now, put this in context, giving a big organizations or any ecosystem, are there certain metrics we value so much that we tend to be colorblind to avoid measuring or we just do not want to measure? Indeed, I've seen that specific behavior of having metrics because you can have those metrics, but not others. And that's a problem. And that's why... I, I always try to go for this very first approach of having the cold question metric approach in a more theoretical thing. So then you have that, let's say, handbook of metrics. Then once you have this in place, maybe you can retrieve some of them. Maybe you cannot, maybe in the future, I don't know. But the point is, as you said, Armstrong, try to you have a broad understanding of what's going on around and then try to have that to land that strategy. I don't know if that makes sense to you, Stormy. Yeah, it does. <laughs> okay, okay. Let's face it, your code is going to have errors, even code written by an amazing developer such as yourself. When bad things happen, it's nice to know that Honey Badger has your back. Honey Badger makes you a DevOps hero by combining error monitoring, uptime monitoring, and cron monitoring into a single, easy-to-use platform, saving you time and cash. Honey Badger monitors and sends error alerts in real time with all the context needed to see what's causing the error and where it's hiding in your code, so you can quickly fix it and get on with your day. The included uptime and cron monitoring also let you know when your external services are having issues or your background jobs go AWOL or silently fail. Go to honeybadger.io and discover how Star, Josh and Ben created a 100% bootstrap monitoring solution. Why is this important? Self-funding means they only answer to you, the developer, rather than a venture capital overlord. As a ChaosCast listener, get 30% off for 6 months. Simply mention ChaosCast when you sign up and they'll apply the discount to your account. No credit card required. And to try to connect the dots here, so all this conversation about metrics and bringing it back to OSPOs, it sounds to me that like the OSPO is the kaleidoscope. Like you're the device by which 
all these metrics and expectations and strategies come in and then you have to shine the light that people prefer on the different business units so they understand what you're doing, uh, which will change based on the angle and what they want to measure. I might be abusing this metaphor a little bit, but does, does that click for you at all, Stormy? Yeah, and, and I see, I think a lot of people think that OSPOs have a goal of making their whole company use open source software. And I, I think I obviously have a bias towards open source software and most OSPOs are heavily involved in open source and inner and want to see more of it. Um, but I think our role is helping the business units know when it's a good time to open source something or when it's a good time to use it. And, and so it's, it's giving them the metrics to know if it's making an impact in their, in their work. And we hope, I mean, we believe it'll make a positive impact, but it's, it's giving them the tools to, to figure it out for their, their business. Indeed, we may, we, uh, can we think of an OSPO as, a, as the specific policy that, for instance, a CTO or a CIO is trying to apply to be, for instance, faster to market because they are using a specific open source technology. So then they need metrics to check if that specific OSPO after or over the years is helping the company to reach that specific business goal. So this is, this is how I see, for instance, this goal question metric approach. So we have specific policies that we apply, yes. We do have goals. Like we have metrics that we measure how many, how many, when people ask to use open source software at Microsoft, what percentage of those had to go to a legal or business review? And we want that number to be small. So if you say you want to use open source, we want to say, great. And we want the tool to tell you, great, or just not stop you, like just let you go. So we actually measure how many of them needed to get further review and how long did that take? Like, and, and so it's kind of a reverse metric. We want that number to go down, right? We, we don't want to be a barrier. And it's, it's actually a really small percentage. Like if, if you work at Microsoft and you want to use open source software, usually you just use it and it, it automatically gets approved in the background. Yeah. And, that, and I guess it's, it's the same or, or, or a pretty similar path when consuming, but at, at the same time when producing open source, right? So internally you need to, to walk certain paths and OSPO is helping in that process. Yep. And we measure those as well. And if you're, if you're contributing... We call it, you know, if you're making a small contribution under a certain number of lines of code, or if it's a bug fix, like just go do it. It's again, one of those kind of pre-approved, you don't even notice we're there um, type process. If you're going to open source, you know, like, you know, if you're going to open source something bigger then then we'll, then you obviously need to, we, we help you figure out how you're going to do it and make sure you know how you're going to do it, how you're going to announce it, that your management knows what you're doing. So they're not surprised later. Yeah, it sounds like. There could just be a ton of work going on simultaneously of a, a bunch of little projects, like a huge release coming up that you're strategically involved in. I guess something we, we jump by that I'm curious about, like what's your day-to-day like when it comes to balancing all these different demands internally for open source expertise? So right now I'm trying to hire someone to work on Clearly Defined. So there's my pitch. If you're listening to this and you're an open source software developer and you want to lead a project, we are looking for someone for Clearly Defined. So that takes up some of my time, but I, I do like, there might be a project that came through and they're, tr- they're trying to open source and they're trying to figure out a name. Naming is super hard. And so we'll get the brand team involved. Even if it's not going to be a big product, it's still important for project. Or we'll have somebody that, that released and they're having an issue growing their community. They might come through right now. We're redoing, we have a huge slide deck we use with customers that are interested in open source. We have a lot of customers that come to us and say, how do you decide what open source software you're using? How do you do your OSPO? And so we'll talk to them. 
So we have a, a group that meets with lots of customers that's trying to redo that presentation. We work on metrics and rolling numbers back to different people in the org um, so that they, they have a feel for how they're doing and what they can do. Awesome. What a great mix of work. I mean, the natural question for me as the maintainer of the value working group in chaos is I, I've got to ask, like, how do you differentiate value as you're looking at projects? Like, uh, as you're thinking about, like, what's, what's a valuable part of this for either your business or, yeah, let's start there. Like, how do you determine whether, like, this is a valuable open source project for our business? Yeah, people really want better answers to that. To that question. So at, at one point in time, Microsoft had a list of like pre-approved software and people loved that because they thought if, if that open source software package is on that list, then somebody must have looked at it and decided it was good and I can just use it. But it, it, wasn't, it wasn't a feasible way to bring the open source software world to a company. Like there's just way too many packages out there. So it's, it's a really hard question. It's a really good one, right? Like, how do I know if this is good to depend on, good to use? Yeah. Others on the panel, like how do you kind of, maybe we can switch this around and offer some advice or, or our own takes. Like Armstrong, how do you perceive value when somebody's asking, like, is this project a valuable one to adopt or to contribute to? Well, to my opinion, I think that really depends on the goal of what we look and a particular project or an ecosystem. For example, if we want to adopt a project with a value, I'll give an example of the Kiosk project. I'll give an example of OpenStack. I'll give an example, let's say, of the Linux kernel or many other projects. It all depends on the culture. that Because each ecosystem or each project has a particular work culture, and that brings forward some kind of values. Oh, interesting. I like it. And you want to make sure the values of that project align to the values of your team. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a powerful angle to approach it at. Yeah. So this, to me, it's something that I really want to take into consideration because sometimes we might only say, okay, I need just the functionality of uh, this particular, like the end product. What do they really like offer based on the technical functionality? But if that doesn't align with your own goals and your career goals, how do people integrate inclusion, uh, kind of diversity and things like that? How's that work culture? Then it might certainly break something along the line on your own uh, project if you adopt. I don't know if that makes sense. I think that question of like what the project does, like the, the true functionality and the culture of who created it because they're bringing the future to it, is not only really interesting right now for open source software, but because kind of key to all of the, the unrest that we're seeing right now in society, right? Like how much of what we do is who we are in our culture and how much is like what we produce. And I, 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 to me, it just feels like there's a, there's, it all kind of goes together there. Yeah. They're intimately connected. And I really like that Armstrong because it, it doesn't, it also can, we can just focus on the technology and still see the culture, right? Like I feel like, an important part of adopting technology is also understanding what features it's pursuing in the future, which is like really setting an intention and uh, aligned to a culture and a path. And, yeah. we'll, and you start looking at like who's being accepted, like what PRs are being accepted. If, if that is from a very narrow set of human beings in this world, and it's, it's not looking to diversify and grow, it's bound to be less of a useful tool for a large group of people going forward. 
So I, I like that as a, it's a very tough metric to capture, but I think that's all the more important to keep in mind. I read an article from one professor in a university in Canada here. He actually gave an outline of one of his courses and just mentioned two changes that he's bringing in the, in the current, uh, in the upcoming semester and in fall. He said he wants to remove black box testing and white box testing. And the motivation behind that was because of the Black Lives Matter movement. I just look at it on Twitter and I try to search, like to go in. I just saw that it was captivating and I saw the number of retweets and comments that people made. It was a lot interesting. Little things like that, little tweaks. I've seen cultures that were not really designed to welcome or to encourage girls in a community. And based on that, you hardly see female contributors growing or even accept, you know. But once we change some of this kind of culture, then we can now see diverse contributors and contributions, even from the technical perspective. Naming conversions and things like that. We see some of the names in some open source projects or some projects. They are really towards in particular, they are like one-sided thing. And now we are talking about diversity, we have inclusion, we need also those type of things to me, I value them and it should really start up front. So adopting certain things, we really want to make sure the foundation is solid. That includes and accepts people, then we cannot focus on the technicality. And you need well diverse projects to, to attract diverse candidates. Because if they look at it and don't see anybody like them, even subconsciously, you might not join, right? If yeah. I look over and saw a whole group of men standing around talking, I, I'm not very observant. I probably would just go up. But like maybe you'd look at it and say, oh, wait, where are, the, where are the women supposed to be? And you would look around the room and I'd be like, oh, they're over there in the kitchen. And I would walk over there <laughs> instead, right? Like that happens with our software projects. Yeah. There's also the, the intent of the project. So I always use the example of if you're going to submit a PR, you need to know, like, you want to know where the project's going to know if, if they're even going to welcome your PR. So maybe you have this project and it, it meets your needs perfectly and you are, you're using it on your desktop and, you know, you, you, you make it run so much faster and you add all this, you know, you add a database to it and you like, you submit the PR and it turns out the person writing the project was trying to put it on their smartwatch and, and, they, and they don't like your, like, 500 megabyte PR, right? Like, so you, you have to know that the project is going the same direction you're going. So the, yeah. making your intentions clear is, is important. Danielle, what do you look out for as you're evaluating valuable projects? <laughs> well, I, I was indeed looking for, as we started to talk about diversity and inclusion, I was looking for the focus areas of the diversity and inclusion working group within chaos. And then I, I was checking the specifically the recognition of good work. So this is this is split into different uh, focus areas as, as other working groups within chaos. So far we have seven of them. So we have communication, inclusivity, contributor, community diversity, event diversity, governance, leadership, project and community, and recognition of good work. And then I was looking specifically at the metrics that we had at the recognition of good work. And then we had contribution type. So for instance, that recognition is cute, a particular kind of contribution as developers producing code are more important than other type of contribution or contribution volume or recognition type. For instance, if we go for this type of contributions to the chaos community, as this is a podcast, is, is this more valuable than other contributions that we can share, for instance, code again? And then we have the recognition value in the sense of do different demographics value the 
produce different types of recognition. So depending on where you live and so on, it gives more value to specific types of recognition. And then we go to the discussion of value. What does it mean, value? I feel like we're just digging a bigger hole, but it's yeah. it's absolutely fascinating. You know, the value group we've reorganized a bit to to try to at least be able to ask the right questions, even if we can't get all the answers, like separating out the perceived individual value. Like, what do I get as somebody who's studying, let's say, Kubernetes? Like, should I invest more in my Kubernetes knowledge or my Python knowledge? Like, what's more likely to get me hired, which uh, a function of uh, why people might be learning open source technology is to you know, support their careers and their, their lives versus kind of social value. Like what are some metrics that you can capture that could explain that this project is associated with trying to do good in the world as opposed to organizational value, trying to maximize profit, not having a judgment call one way or the other, but we're, we're trying to explore that. So I guess it's my turn for a shameless plug stormy. Of if that if those questions interest you, please join our value group because it's really fun to think through these and try to experiment our way into asking the right questions. It's pretty tricky. And and anyone can just join, right? It's not a full-time job you're looking for. Oh god, no. No, it is a yeah, this is the free time. Yeah, contributors welcome part of chaos we meet once a week but you can comment on issues asynchronously and still be a very active member we've got some great people that are not able to participate in the meeting time and are still very much valued and appreciated yeah awesome yeah so thinking about value a little bit further you know what's something as you like personally look at projects let's let's leave our corporate jobs aside for a second as you're playing with software like what's what's something that you appreciate when you come across it in an open source project I always like knowing why people created the piece of software. Like there's so many good stories when you ask people, why did you start doing this? How did, how did you end up here? And I love those stories. One of the first ones I heard that made me realize there were stories behind it was somebody was writing a piece of software and it turns out his child couldn't speak. There was, there was some physical reason that she couldn't um, make sound. And so he'd written a speech synthesizer for her to like just read out what she wanted to say. I just thought, wow, that, that's a really awesome story. Really moving. Wow. Yeah, that is, that's incredibly powerful. Like the, those reasons why it just connects us. Like the, no matter how much we measure, as much as we're fans of that and chaos, it's, it's really comes down to like, what, what's the great story that we can tell and connect to other human experiences. So we'll wrap up into the way we close out every Chaos Cast show. Well, everyone has a, a pick, something that came to mind that brought them a little joy this week or uh, something they want to share with others. And we'll start with our welcome guests. What's on your mind, Stormy? Yeah, I, I found it really... So I'm, I'm a big fan of remote working. I've worked remote for a long time. And I think it's, it has a lot of benefits that I wish the rest of the world um, had access to. And right now, the rest of the world is getting access to the benefits of working from home. And one of the things that Microsoft did right after we started working from home, um, I mentioned I'm in the same organization as the One Engineering System. They do the build systems for a lot of Microsoft. And they said, how is this affecting people? Like, are we being as productive from home? And they measured PRs and later teams went on and measured like how many Teams calls and how many instant messages and how many emails. And I, I think the data coming out of that is really interesting. So people, in the beginning, we thought people weren't working more. Now it looks like they are working a little more, like 10% more than normal. 
but the working hours have gotten longer and people are supposedly taking more breaks during the day, but they're not all taking the break at the same time like they used to right around lunchtime. The breaks are much more dispersed across the day. And then there was recently a Harvard Business Review article written with some of the data. And one of the stats I thought was really interesting is that the people that had more one-on-ones with their manager were less likely to be working lots of extra hours. So it just builds on like how relationships are important. And uh, they, they found out we have a lot more meetings now, but we're making them a lot shorter. So there are a lot more half-hour meetings and a lot less one-hour meetings. So hopefully they're more efficient. So I just find it kind of fascinating how our, how our work is changing and hopefully how we're making it better and more efficient. And hopefully we keep that. I love that. That's so interesting. Uh, we'll definitely link to it in the show notes. How about you, Armstrong? What's, what's your pick for this week? Well, my pick for this week actually centers around health, our personal health, especially at this time of quarantine. So many people are sitting down for too long, having meetings online and less physical activity. That, to me, could be harmful in the near future. So I try as much as possible to get up and walk like one hour walk each day to make sure I cover like 10,000 steps, try to stand up often and drink water. So that's something I want also to share and to encourage people to do. Try to stay safe and stay healthy. Did you see that ring? It's a wearable and it's a ring. The NFL is using it. It starts with oh, like Ori. And it, it tracks, it was created to track your sleep, but it also tracks your temperature all the time. And they can actually tell when you're getting sick a couple days before you get sick, oh. that your finger temperature changes a little bit. It's really interesting. What? Wow. <laughs> That's so cool. I, I'm not quite willing to go drop $300 on it, but I, I really would like to play with one for a couple of weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Danielle, what's your pick this week? Yeah, I think this time I'm not having a proper pick, but what I'm asking is for some piece of advice. So during this working home, there, there, there's been kind of inflation in articles, podcasts, conferences online, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't really know how to organize myself. And that's probably a problem. And given the, the, the huge amount of information that it's uh, out there, do you have any specific piece of advice here? Oh, it's a meta pick. <laughs> so I have one. I spent last weekend looking for a better to-do list. I, I think I just like making lists. I don't actually like cre- like using the same tool forever. But I found Habitica, and it's it's yeah. like a role-playing game crossed with a to-do list. I don't know. Like every time I check something off, and it goes ding, you got gold coins. I go yay. So it's kept me focused on my to-do list because I want to go check them off. Mm-hmm. I've got one for you, Danielle. I'd say read the book Atomic Habits. While uh, it's definitely pseudoscience at times, there's some good social psychology tips. And as much as I love reading about psychology, it actually did a great job of internalizing this model of like how habits are formed and like what are some strategies. So it's less about managing a to-do list and more about building these habitual cycles so that like when you do start to consume something, you just kind of cruise on from like, I get my coffee to I sit down and read this thing and I turn this off. And like you can intentionally habit stack is what they call it. Like stack these habits and filter out the ones you don't want by changing, like tuning them. And I've been doing that for the last couple of weeks and feel a lot less stressed when it comes to consuming stuff. Cause I just kind of, I've also gotten in the habit of just deleting a bunch of things I don't read because there is just way too much. And I think being okay, letting that go has been awesome. And so Atomic Habits has been a good book that helped me get there. 
Thank you for the pieces of advice. I'm taking note. Nice. All right. And so my official pick to, to round us up, I, yeah, I haven't been able to focus on like really important things. Like one of the very unimportant things I love to mess with and open source are dot files, like the little personalization files that we have on our computers. And as I switch between multiple Linux distros these days, I've been trying to figure out how to tune those. I came across a project called Chez Moi for like my house in French or my home. And it is like this perfect dot file manager. And it gives you like a, you just say apply and it will copy and paste across different systems using Git in between. And you can make them public or keep them private. But it, it is drastically simplified the way I keep my profile across like Mac and to Linux distros, and they all work pretty flawlessly now. So worth worth a look. Those little things can make a huge difference. They also just make me happy. <laughs> and we all need to do stuff that makes us happy. And I need to drink more water, Armstrong. That's such a good point. <laughs> Well, good. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, panel. Thank you, Stormy, so much for teaching us about OSPOs and telling us about your experience at Microsoft. This has been another episode of the Chaos Cast. Thanks and see you next time.